Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue through our study of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. We're looking today at verses 14 to verses 18 of chapter 2. Now, I don't know what you expected when we started Hebrews, what you think this letter to the, that was written in the New Testament was, would reveal to you. Uh, sometimes our expectations are different than, uh, than we expected, but uh, I don't know what you were expecting. Sometimes we're surprised. Somebody sent me this little note the other day, this email of a, of a guy who was walking by, often walked in the countryside and walked by a, an old mailbox that was nailed to an old, old oak tree, 150-year-old oak tree. And as he walked by this oak tree all the time and saw this mailbox, he, uh, he just kind of wondered what was there, you know, what was in there. And so one day he actually opened the box up. And when he opened the box up, he found in there an old letter. And he couldn't believe it because there was no house around. No, there's, all there was was woods and this mailbox. So he opened up the, bo- opened up the box, opened the letter, and it had a postmark on it. The postmark was July 7th, 1903. And he thought, my goodness, wonder what, 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 I'm going to open this up and see what it is. It could be something historic. It could be an old love letter that never got delivered to somebody. This could be magnificent. So he opened up the, the letter, and it said this on the inside. We've been trying to reach you about your vehicle's extended warranty. <laughs> I doubt that's a true story, but somebody did send it to me. Well, as we've looked at Hebrews, as we opened it up, we've seen that uh, at the first chapters about the deity of Jesus Christ. It has is, is shown us clearly the superiority and the supremacy of Jesus Christ himself as the Son of God. Chapter 2 turns to the subject of his humanity. That the Son of God became man, the incarnation. And especially, we saw last time, verses 5 to 13, uh, at, at, a point in, at, at, at all that and what it meant to us and what it accomplished. And so we have by the end of verse 13 of chapter 2, the fact established that he is the God-man. He is the great God-man, combined in one person, never divided, the God-man, the miracle, something we can't totally comprehend. But the, fact, the issue remains, what does that mean to us? Why did he do that? Why did God become man? Why did he come to the earth? Why did he, did he live on this planet? Why did he die? Why, did he, why was he resurrected? Why? Well, there's, uh, we looked at some things in verses 10 and 11 last time, a number of reasons why he came and died for us. Number one is verse 10, for it was fitting for him. It was the only methodology that was fitting for uh, God to give a redemption plan for us that would fit the very nature of God as a holy God. It was fitting that he would do that. And secondly, we, we saw also that he was the trailblazer at the end of chapter, verse 10. He's the, he was the perfect author or trailblazer. He blazed the trail from, from us to God. He blazed the trail from, from sinful humanity to the throne of heaven. He had to blaze that trail for you and for I. And then we saw also one more thing in verse 11. He did so in order that we might become part of the family of God. So that it says in verse 11, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That we can be in the family of God. So all that is part of why he came and why he died for us. But there's, there's even more here to be looked at. There's one more thing we want to look at before we finish chapter 2. And we get a hint of that from the word death. The word death shows up five different times in the latter part of this chapter. Twice in verse 9, twice in verse 14, and once in verse 15. So what was Jesus' incarnation and his death to accomplish? 
Here's the next thing, deliverance. That word is not found per se in the text, but that's what we're talking about, the deliverance that he has brought to us. Now let's follow the storyline. Let's take a, great, a good look at this. We start off with this, Christ's incarnation and his death drained Satan of his power. Verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, and that is the devil. So sin had been committed in the realm of humanity, the realm of human nature, the realm of life on this planet, and death came at the same realm. And therefore it was necessary for Christ to come into our realm, into the human realm, into the physical structure, in order to die for our sin. If you have, have weeds in your garden, and you go to the store and you get a weed killer for that, the perfect weed killer, but you never apply it to the garden, it doesn't do any good, does it? You put it on a shelf in the garage and you never use it, doesn't do any good to you for you at all. It has to be applied. And so it was necessary for the Lord to come to the garden of humanity where we were, where sin was, in order that he might be man and that he might uh, solve the issues that faced us. But how does Satan get involved in all this? This is verse 14, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. How does Satan get involved in this? What's his, what's his point? What's his process? Well, we know in chapter 3 of Genesis, Satan comes to the, the human garden of Eden. He tempts first the woman and then the man. Adam is responsible for the choice of sin and bringing sin on the human race. Satan then introduced sin to the human race. And therefore, in that sense, he had the power of sin and, the, and death is a consequence of sin. Therefore, in a sense, he's the author of death in the human realm because he's the one that introduced sin to humanity. And so it tells us here, the, the, the Lord came to the garden of mankind and he died for their sin. I don't think so at all. He is very alive and he's very well on planet earth and he's very active. If he was destroyed, we wouldn't have verses like 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 that says he roams about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That wouldn't be in there. Our first, our Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 11 on down, when he says that we need to be firm against the schemes of the devil, who is attempting to deceive us all the time. Those verses wouldn't be there if he was gone, if he was annihilated, if he, if he was destroyed. So Satan is certainly not destroyed. So the rendering in New American Standard is the one that is, I think is the proper one. It's not destruction, it's rendering powerless the one who had that is the power he had over death has been destroyed. He no longer has the power of death in the life of the believer. We do not die spiritually. We have eternal life. And our physical body, though it may die, will be resurrected. The grave cannot hold us. And therefore, he has been rendered powerless in that sense. John Owen, one of the famous Puritans of the past, wrote a book. The title of the book says it pretty well. The death of death in the death of Christ. That's a good title. The death of death in the death of Christ. And so Christ coming in the incarnation and going to the cross drains Satan of that power that, uh, of death in the life of God's children. Secondly, it also delivered us, who are his children, from the fear of death. So it's basically verse 15 is an application He says in verse 15, And might free those who through fear of death 
were subject to slavery all their lives. Uh, John Morris, one a very good commentator, said this, the, the defeat of the devil means the setting free of those who had held sway, he had held sway over, those who had been gripped by the fear and death. And he's right. We no longer, if we're his, we no longer need ever fear death again. We'll, we'll die, and fear is a mystery. Unless the Lord returns, we will all face that death, and it is a difficult thing. It's a hard thing, but we need not fear it because we know the Lord has conquered death. So I want to talk about death for a few moments. Uh, primitive societies uh, have uh, feared, de- feared death greatly, and this was a primitive society at the time. Around the world today, the animistic societies, wherever you go, are extremely fearful of death. They make up all sorts of superstitions and so forth to try to somehow deal with death. We, on the, in the Western Front, uh, we more or less cover it up. Uh, we do the best we can to, uh, to not see it in its raw form. Uh, we, we, are, uh, we distance ourselves every bit as much as we possibly can. For example, we die in hospitals. We're beautified in funeral homes. Some, of, some people look their best in their casket. You know, we're surrounded by flowers. We, have kind, we say kind words about the people. Friends and family show up. We're buried in scenic locations. Uh, we create our own superstitions about the next life and the comfort that is there, and the departed one is now at rest or at peace. As Abraham Lincoln said about one of his generals who was having a funeral, he said if he knew he was going to have that good of a funeral, he would have died sooner. So we're different on the West. We try to cover it up. We try to beautify it as much as possible. But this does not blunt the, act, the fact of death. So how do we try to deal with it here in, in our world today? How do, we, how do people deal with death, the fact that we all die? How do we deal with it? I think a number of ways in the West in particular. We don't seem to fear death because we've covered it. We cover it in one way. Uh, by simply understanding that it's a mystery, but we don't know what to do with it, so we kind of let it go. The actor Anthony Hopkins said, I love life because what more is there? Nothing lasts, really. There's going to be a darkness, and it's all over. So he's banking on the fact that this is it, and there's no more. Larry King, the the, uh, interviewer who died a few years ago, said before he died uh, that that he feared death, and he should have feared death. He had been given the gospel a number of times by people like John MacArthur, and he had rejected the gospel, as far as I know, to the very end, and therefore he should fear death. And when he died, and after he's gone now that he's dead, and he knows why he feared death. Death is real, and the afterlife is real as well. But for the most part, we try to mask it, we try to cover it up, and we do it in a number of ways. One way we try to do it is through humor. Believe it or not, that's a, even though we don't like to talk about death, we sometimes have fun with death. Here are some tombstones, actual tombstones, and the, uh, the, the writings on the tombstones. I'm going to give you several. One in England says, Anna Wallace, the children, this is for Anna Wallace, the children of Israel wanted bread, and the Lord sent them manna. Old clerk Wallace wanted a wife, and the devil sent him Anna. That, that's actually on the tombstone. In New Mexico, it says, Here lies Johnny Yeast. Pardon me for not rising. (laughs) Here's a guy named Sir John Strange. It says on his tombstone, Here lies an honest lawyer, and that is strange. (laughs) In Georgia, and some of you will put this on your tombstone, I told you I was sick. (laughs) 
a grave in the 1800s in Nantucket has this. Under the sod and under the trees lies the, bo- the body of Jonathan Pease. He's not here. That's, there's only the pod. Pease shelled out and went to God. Another one said, uh, somebody got that. Uh, another one says, non-explosive burning fluid. This is on the tombstone. Non-explosive burning fluid. Oops. Another one said, looked up the elevator shaft to see if the car was coming on the way down. It was. And then here's one. Here's, here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. And then there's a cemetery in England that says this. Remember man as you walk by, as you were now, so once was I. As I am now, so shall you be. Remember this and follow me. And somebody actually wrote on the tombstone these words. He said, said this, to follow you, I'll not consent until I know which way you went. That's a little wiser, I think. So humor, some people do that. I don't know about many, but most people ignore death as much as possible. If you jump out of an airplane and you have a parachute, you can enjoy the, the thrill of the drop, right? You pull the, you pull the cord, the parachute comes out, you very softly hit the ground, and all is well. But what if you jump out of an airplane and two seconds later you realize, oops, I forgot the parachute. I don't think it's going to happen too often, but go with me. What if you, what if you did that and suddenly you realize you're on your way down to death? Now you have two choices at that point. You can um, enjoy the ride down or you can be in absolute panic. And, and, but, but let's say you decide, uh, okay, I, I'm, I'm not going to live through this, but I'm going to enjoy this two or three minute thrill going down. And when I hit the ground, I'm going to be dead, but I'm going to enjoy what I've got. And who knows when I hit the ground, maybe a miracle will happen and I won't die. Actually, I think that's exactly what most people think. I'm going to enjoy the ride as long as I can. I'm just going to float on down. And when I hit the ground, maybe something miraculous will happen and all will be well. How ridiculous. Those are tricks of the devil. If he can't make you afraid of death, he can make you make fun of death. Or he can make you ignore death. But, he, but death is still there. And you are going to die. And you are going to face God. And you're going to face eternity. So all that to say this is that as Christ came, that we not to, not to joke about death, not to ignore death, not to make up superstitions about death. Christ came that he might deliver us from the fear of death and from death itself. A great verse of scripture. I love this verse, 2 Timothy 1.10. Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life. That's what he did. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to life. And therefore, as a Christian dies, they die differently than the rest of the world because we know the one who has abolished death. There's a, I think one of the best stories I've ever heard that uh, illustrates that was concerning uh, a missionary move, uh, missionaries who went to Zaire, pioneer missionaries who went there a long time ago. And, uh, and at the 100th year anniversary of the gospel being taken to Zaire, there was uh, a celebration put on by one of the missions. And at that uh, celebration, there was an ancient man who, had, uh, who wanted to tell the story of how his, how his tribe dealt with the missionaries. When the missionaries came to Zaire, they thought they were odd and weird and strange, and they wanted nothing to do with them. 
And therefore, they decided to start poisoning them. So they started putting poison in their food, but apparently they didn't have the proportions very well done. So, so most of the mission, I don't think any of the adult missionaries actually, actually died, but some of the children did. And as they were burying their children over the next few years, this old man says he remembers his father saying this. He said, as we watched how they died, we decided to live for Christ. They saw that, they, that the missionaries buried their own children in ways totally different than anything they'd ever seen because Christ had taken the sting out of death. And then I love this ancient story from Jonathan Edwards' wife, the great uh, Christian uh, pastor back in the 1700s who died prematurely because of, of a certain de- disease. He said that his wife wrote these words to, it, to one of the daughters. She said, My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we might kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. That's a testimony of one who knows that the Lord reigns and lives, and we who know him will reign and live with him. There's something else we want to say here in verse 16 now. We've seen now the incarnation and the cross has drained Satan of his power over death. We see that he's delivered us from from death, the fear of death, because we're his. Thirdly, it's a demonstration of the grace of God. And verse 16 is a strange verse. Verse 16 says this, For surely he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Now this is one of those verses that causes me to scratch my head. He has a good flow going here. He's talking about the incarnation. He's talking about about Christ coming and dying for us. He's talking about the benefits of that and the conquering of death. And then all of a sudden he returns to talking about angels which he's been talking about in chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. For the last time until the very end of the book, he goes back to angels. And so why in the world does he do that? I want to suggest he does that for this reason. He now wants to talk to us about grace. The word grace is not there, but the concept is there. Now follow along with what I have to say here. When the angels fell, he did not give help to them. Now we're in the context of redemption, And we're in the context of deliverance, and we're in the context of death. When the angels sinned, the ones that followed Satan, apparently a third of the angelic world, the Lord did not help them. He did not provide a redemption program for the angels. They died. They don't die physically, but spiritually they're dead because of their sin, and he did not die for them. No redemption plan for angels. But for us there is. Why a redemption plan for humanity in which Christ himself comes to the earth and lives and dies and resurrects for us? Why do this for us but not for angels? Angels, arguably, as he says in chapter 2, are more superior than than people. They're they're majestic. They're they're full of splendor. They're great. They're powerful. Why didn't he resurrect? I mean, why didn't he provide a plan of redemption for them? And my answer is sovereign grace, the plan of God wrapped around grace. Now, grace is often misunderstood, 
awful lot of people, they love to sing Amazing Grace, they love to talk about grace, and they don't really know what grace is. I, I read too often, even in Christian circles, that grace is a demonstration of how much God values us. That he saves us because our val- of our worth and our value, and that's why he's given us grace. Think for two minutes, and you realize that destroys grace. It is not grace if he looks down and sees you're, you're of value, you're of worth, and he's going to save you because of that. Grace is giving us something we don't deserve. We're not valuable enough to, to get it. He gives us value because he gives us grace. He doesn't save us because of grace. Grace is unmerited. It's a gift totally of God. So it's not because we're valuable. It's because of sovereign grace. Secondly, a lot of people who understand that says, but it's not fair what God does. I mean, God gives grace to uh, Wally, but he didn't give grace to Sally. Why, why did he do that? That isn't fair, you know. And God must be fair. Uh, God must, he can't play favorites. We'll tell that to the angels. See, that's what this verse is about. Here are the great and the magnificent and the powerful angels who when they sin, God never did anything to redeem them. They are lost for eternity. But when humanity sinned, he, found, he came up with a plan to save them for eternity. A redemption plan based on grace. Think, put yourself in the, in the shoes of angels, if they had shoes. And, and think about it. They're, they're watching what the Lord is doing. And they're saying to themselves, they're looking at him, Jesus come at the incarnation. They say, what is this? The Son of God is becoming a man and living a bunch among that godless group of people? And, and look, at, look at this. He stepped into time. And, and I can't believe it. He, st- he not only took a form of man but, and lived among them, but he's going to a cross to die for them? I, I, can't, I, I can't comprehend that. And look, he resurrected from the dead. And then he offers them eternal salvation on the basis of grace alone. And receiving that gift by faith alone? What is this? Why didn't he do that for angels? Why did he do it for humanity? Why? Grace. Sovereign grace of God. It's not fair. It's grace. God has chosen to provide redemption for man, but not for angels. Fair? No. Grace? Yes. May we never get over The amazing grace. Grace is not about fairness. Grace is about grace. One more thing. These are the verses that we know best. One more thing that the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection provided. Verses 17 and 18. He paved the way for Christ to become, this paved the way for Christ to become our great high priest. Therefore, he says in verse 17, he, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He had to come, therefore, and become a man. Why? There had to be a purpose. Why? What is the reason? He says, so that he could become our faithful, read the rest of the verse here, become our merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. This is the first mention in the scriptures of Jesus becoming our high priest. Now, Hebrews will deal with that a lot, but this is the first mention in Scripture. He is our high priest, and notice a couple of things about that high priesthood. He is faithful and merciful. This was important to the Jewish people because they had had a high priest for hundreds of years, but they were not faithful and they were not merciful for the most part. 
Most of them uh, were not merciful. They didn't care about anybody else. They, they wanted to get their lamb uh, to eat it at the end of the sacrifices. They didn't care about the burdens people carried. They didn't care about their sins. They loaded them up with burdens. Our Ch- Pastor Chad at our retreat this weekend talked about the passage of Scripture in Matthew 11 concerning Jesus giving them rest. He wasn't giving them extra loads, but the Pharisees loaded the people up with burdens. He over- overwhelmed them with rules and regulations. Jesus gave them rest from all that. But the Jewish priesthood didn't. Nor were they faithful throughout the history of Israel. So often they would take bribes. They would, uh, they would be unfair. They'd do whatever they wanted to do for themselves because they were not faithful to God and they were not faithful to their people. Remember, it was the high priest of Israel who led the charge for the crucifixion of Jesus. So in that context, he says that Christ is our faithful and our merciful high priest, and goes on to the end of the verse, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He wanted to give a weary people compassion and mercy, but he also came to give propitiation. Now here we got a $50 word that nobody uses when they go to Aldi's. You know, could you, could you give me some propitiation here and give me that quarter or whatever you do, you know? It's not a word we use. It's, a, it's an unusual word, right? And so some of, the, some of the translators of scriptures have tried to make it more understandable to us and have destroyed its meaning. For example, the New International translates it, make atoning sacrifice or make atonement. That is not what this word means. Atonement means to cover. The blood of Jesus Christ covered our sins so that when the Lord sees, looks upon us, those sins are seen through the blood of Christ and dealt with forever. But propitiation means something totally different. And, and if you don't know the meaning of this word, it's time to do it. It's time as serious Christians understand serious words. The word propitiation simply means the satisfaction of the righteous demands of God. His wrath had to be satisfied. Christ died for us, the direction of us, the atonement for our sins, but, but his sacrifice also pointed to God, the Father, the holy, perfect God. He is righteous in his justice. He's righteous in his anger. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. God's wrath is poured out on unrighteousness. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 said that we are the very enemies of God. What's going to be done about that? Uh, how can the enemies of God be right with God and be in his family? How, how can these things be uh, dealt with? Propitiation. Jesus Christ's sin, uh, sacrifice paid uh, or, or satisfied the righteous, holy, justice and wrath of God for us so that his anger is poured out on Christ alone and not on us this is a glorious truth folks and it's one that you ought to revel in without that we are doomed there is no hope because God's anger had to be properly dealt with 
his, sac- his, his, his anger has been satisfied. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, For since he himself was tempted in what he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, we might call this a side benefit, although it's a great, ben- it's a great side benefit. And I want you to note, first of all, that he comes to the aid of those who are tempted. So we know that Christ, in his humanity, was tempted like us. He went through all the things we went through. He knows exactly what we, what we suffer. He can come alongside to aid us and help us because he's been there. He's experienced exactly what we've experienced, even more intensely. And therefore, he can be our great high priest in that regard. But he's talking about here the temptation in which he suffered. And he's talking about death. So I think the context is this. The suffering and the temptation we're talking about here is all related to his death on the cross. And as he says that, he's talking then about the fact that that he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted in what? When are we most perhaps seriously tempted to wobble in our faith? Perhaps to doubt, to, to, to despair. It's when we face death. It's when we are facing personal death or one we love deeply is dying or has died that we are tempted to wonder if God really knows what he's up to. Is this right? Could the holy God of the universe be doing the right thing and letting my loved one die? We're tempted to question God. We're tempted to panic. But he says, look, he's able to come to our aid at that point of temptation. There he ministers to us. There in that temptation, when we're wobbling, when we're perhaps doubting, he is there to see us through those moments. And those who trust in him can can testify over and over and over that at that deepest time of sorrow, at the lowest valley of my life, God was with me. And he saw me through. Because Jesus Christ is our high priest who can see us through our deepest struggles. The best known song, I think the one that's sung the most in Christian circles universally, is what we call the doxology. Do we have those words for the, for the last thing? The doxology was not called the doxology originally. It was called the evening hymn. It was actually a child's song written for children who went to bed at night to sing. And so we sing, and we're going to sing just the second part of that in just a moment. The concerning praise God whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But, er, but there were other verses to this song that nobody ever sings today. And we were going to sing this one, but as I looked over it, it was hard to sing. So we're just going to read it. But here's what children were singing 150 years ago when they went to bed. These words, teach me to live that I may dread the grave as little as my bed. Teach me to die so that I may rise glorious at the judgment day. Teach me, Lord. And then it goes on to say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Why do we praise him for what he's done for us, for who he is? If we know him, we can go to bed at night just exactly as that song says. Teach me to, to dread my the grave as little as my bed. I can trust him in life. I can trust him in death. I can trust him in eternity. I can trust him forever because Jesus Christ came for me, died for me, resurrected for me, 
and is coming again. And therefore we praise Him. We're going to sing this song. If our group wants to come, I'll close in prayer. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, please see us before you go so we can talk to you about that. Father, we thank you again for all that we have said today, all that we've seen in this great passage of Scripture. May it speak to our hearts and draw us to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.